and welcome to the Jacob Burns Filmcast, episode one. I am co-host Paige Grandprey, the digital marketing associate here at the Burns. Hi, I am Mike Townjo, tech and audio production here at the Burns as well. And today we're going to be talking about best of the decade. Yeah. So Mike and I are going to go through our lists first because obviously we believe we have the best taste. Um, just to give you a bit of an intro on ourselves, my favorite film of all time, if forced to choose, is Inuritu's Amores Peros. I never heard of that. What What really? is this? Yeah. Yeah. It is a film with multiple intersecting stories and a very young Gael Garcia Bernal, mm. among others. But yeah, it has all these different stories in Mexico City that intersect in ways that you don't expect. And all of them involve dogs in some oh way, shape, or form. It is a really dramatic film. I do not mean to suggest <laughs> that it is an adorable, puppy-loving film. Um, but that's where it comes from. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not surprised that one of your favorite films of all time, or your favorite film of all time, involves puppers. Oh, yeah. Least, least surprising <laughs> piece of information. At least one pupper. <laughs> uh, my favorite film of all time is not as deep. <laughs> it is Little Shop of Horrors. Excellent choice, though. Yeah. I am a choice. sucker for musicals. Yeah, I'm a sucker for horror. I think I first saw it when I was like three years old or something. And ever since then, it was like an annual tradition every, I guess, Halloween, holiday season, whatever, um, to make it a point to watch it. Yeah, it's such a special film with a perfect soundtrack. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorites. My cat's automatic feeder is entitled Feed Me Seymour. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. So big fan over here as well. So yeah, we're going to count down our top 10 lists and then also talk about the overall staff picks because we did do a blog post where we asked JBFC staffers to put together their top 10 of the decade. And so we're going to go through those and we did an overall ranking, basically assigning points. So if someone picked a film as number one, gets 10 points, number two gets nine points, so on and so forth down the list. So Mike and I are going to do our own, and then we have the ultimate be-all, end-all to the JBFC staff best of the decade list. Yes, the official list. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, so starting with number 10. Go for it. Yeah, so my number 10 is Tangerine by Sean Baker. Excellent. Came out in 2015, and if I had to pick in terms of my favorite Sean Baker movie, I honestly would say The Florida Project. But the reason I put Tangerine on this list instead of The Florida Project was, one, I thought it was one of the most beautiful and tender and empathetic portraits I've seen of sex workers, particularly trans sex workers, on a big screen and that was really powerful to just see and know that other people saw and were impressed by. But it also happens to be one of the first feature films shot on an iPhone. And that's why I have it at number 10, that it's a great film. But when I think about what kind of set the stage for filmmaking in the last decade and beyond, I think about the increased portability and decreasing size of technology uh, that allows us to make films in entirely new ways. And so Tangerine comes in at number 10 for me. Yeah, and this was when the iPhone cameras were still like not great. Oh yeah. Like what was it, iPhone 4, I think? Yeah. Something like that? Comes out in 2015, probably shot 2014. So yeah, we're yeah, looking so at- the iPhone 6 or whatever. Yeah, that didn't have 4K, didn't have slow-mo, any of these like fancy things that the X and 
above half. Right. Uh, I shamefully have never seen Tangerine, and I really need to change that because I adore the Florida Project. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely worth a watch. Yeah. And it's also like eighty-five minutes long. It's That's, really tight. Yeah. Yeah. I much prefer like <laughs> sub hour and a half films yeah, nowadays. Exactly. There's way too much out there to like consume okay. everything, and I can't handle like. As much as I love them, like three hour Avengers <laughs> Endgames and yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I need to catch up on that. It's great. Yeah. Florida Projects just missed my list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Definitely an honorable mention and is one that made the list of quite a few JBFC yeah. staffers. Yeah. So we should note that as well. Yeah. Uh, my number 10 is something opposite of <laughs> something that's uh, very beautiful. Uh, Raw. French horror film uh, about a young woman who slowly turns into this cannibalistic raging monster sort of thing. I told Paige this behind the scenes. I'm going to try my very hardest to not curse on this podcast, but (laughs) it is an incredibly effed up showing of a new take on cannibalism and like kind of the innocence and like how terrifying it is. Like, the portrayal of cannibalism as like a disease and like how it could take over somebody beautifully shot, awesome music, uh, incredible acting about the lead actress who I'm blanking on her name. Of course, I haven't seen her in anything else, but I hope she pops up in some more, uh, features coming. Uh, and yeah, it's a film that will definitely stick with you because some of the imagery is uh, nightmare fuel. Yeah. I was going to say there are a few images that stick with me more than people gorging on entrails and just meat <laughs> yeah in general i'm a meat eater but it still makes me uncomfortable watching yeah. people eat like that quick uh side story <laughs> relating to the first time ever i've seen this film in theaters there's four seats in front of us i see a woman two blank seats and a man the man and the woman stand up and then two children stand up from where i can't see oh, because God. they're very short uh <laughs> these <laughs> as children are uh, it was just the most wild thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. That yeah. would not, like, that was difficult for me to watch as yeah. an adult. I can't imagine. Yeah. For context, as a child, I ran out of Jumanji during the stampede because I was so terrified. <laughs> yeah. We left and went to go see Balto instead. Oh, Balto. Yeah. <laughs> Backstory for me. Uh, my babysitter went to go rent Jack Frost starring Michael Keane. <laughs> uh, I got the wrong Jack Frost. <laughs> Uh, hence why a lot of films on this list have kind of a theme. (laughs) Yeah, It makes so much sense now. Yeah. Uh, so number 10, raw. Awesome. All right. Moving right along, uh, on any hard segue, my number nine is bridesmaids. (laughs) Also about Uh, cannibalism. Yeah. (laughs) Um, directed by Paul Feig came out 2011 And to be frank, I've seen this film so many times and it's now such a part of the cultural zeitgeist that when I was looking at films from the past decade, just to make sure I didn't miss anything, I frankly was kind of surprised that it had come out in the last 10 years, that I thought of it as this thing that's been around for a really long time, more than 10 years. Um, But I chose it, one, because it's obviously hilarious. Everyone who hasn't seen Bridesmaids should go out and see it. Um, But it also announced the arrival of this new wave of female comics who are really unapologetic and unabashed and unashamed in their comedy with everything from physical comedy to really self-deprecating comedy. And obviously this kind of all-star SNL and stand-up lineup stacking bridesmaids. Um, But the way it worked was also so wonderful in that it was this 
story of being a bridesmaid, something that a lot of women have to go through and for better or for worse, um, much like a marriage. Um, it's about being there for your friends and um, the travails that can come with that, including the tension caused by all of the stuff involved in wedding planning, something Mike has now become aware of. It's, and It's wonderful. Yeah. It's the best experience of my life. <laughs> I'm so happy to live in this world for another year and a half. Um, but yeah, Bridesmaids is just endlessly funny. Some of the best comedic performances I've seen before or since. And that's one that I watch so frequently I've lost track at this point. And I know it's going to have a lot of staying power. Yeah, what you were saying with how it kind of introduced this new wave of female comedians coming into that new like brand of comedy that we've kind of gotten established by like Will Ferrell and old school Talladega Nights, stuff like that, like that crew now adapting yeah. to females. Absolutely. Which is awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. I am sure that came out in this decade. Yeah. twenty. That's what I'm saying. 2011. It feels that's like it's crazy. been around forever. Um, <laughs> going back to the opposite end. <laughs> it's a real ping pong. I it's love a real it. ping pong. Yeah. It, mine lightens up in a little bit. <laughs> uh, my number nine is Prisoners, directed mm. by a name I can never pronounce, so I'm so sorry. Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Something Vill like that. Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Uh, director of Arrival, Sicario. Um, he is currently shooting Dune. Um, starring Hugh Jackman and Paul Dano and Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm completely blanking on the plot, kind of like what the actual like central thing is, because it's like... It is a driving force for the entire plot, obviously, but it's not why I remember this film. I believe it's a murder or a, a abduction, something like that. Yeah. Paul Dano is accused of something. I believe it's a murder of uh, Hugh Jackman's child. And Jake Gyllenhaal plays the detective trying to solve the case. Uh, and the entire film is Hugh Jackman on this witch hunt for Paul Dano and just going from a... Uh, a very worried father to somebody who is committing this heinous crime of essentially keeping this man who is not proven to be guilty prisoner and like tortured and just trying to find uh, his child just out of desperation. It kind of like gives you a peek into the world of being a parent and what you would do to save your kid. Absolutely. And it's, it's insane. It was such a hell of a ride. It was my introduction to Denny and, Ever since then, I, I've loved all of his films so far, and I cannot. I've I have no like love or history with Dune. I cannot wait for Dune oh, just I'm because so it's Dune. I'm so psyched. And that cast is, you know, the entire film industry is in it. But, <laughs> yeah. So number nine is Prisoners. Yeah, awesome. A lighthearted rom com. <laughs> <Rob. laughs> um. Yeah. Aside from the directing, I'm also a really big Paul Dano fan. Yeah. Have been ever since. Probably Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. And he just continues to be absolutely spectacular, especially with as recently as Dan Amora, which he was much yeah. more involved in the production of. And uh, Swiss Army Man, I loved. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. And uh, 2021's The Batman as Riddler. <laughs> Wait, is he really going to yeah, be Yeah, he's Riddler. Yeah, dude. To Robert Pattinson's Batman. Yeah, to Colin Farrell's Penguin. To Wait, Colin Farrell is the Penguin? He's well, not nearly squat enough for that. Nah, that's fine. All there, right, we'll there, get back to yeah, that. Yeah, we'll... <laughs> I'll tell you some deep Batman lore <laughs> after this. <laughs> Anyways, films. All right, yeah, films. So number my number eight is going more on uh, Mike's wavelength. I have Jordan Peele's Get Out. 
Hell yeah. Which came out in 2017. And I was a really big Key and Peele fan for a long time. Still am, respectively, of Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. Um, When I came into Get Out, I knew that people were calling it a horror film or a thriller, um, whatever you want to say. So I knew to expect something different and had always loved his humor. So then to go in kind of blindly to see Get Out, and I am someone who is relatively new to the horror genre. I am a huge scaredy cat. When I was a kid and I watched a scary movie, I would sleep with the lights on for a month. And when I say kid, I mean like up to age 16. This is not like, it's not that I've matured out of my scaredy catness. It is with me still. But as a film lover, I know that there are movies that if I don't see because I'm worried about being scared of them, that I'm just cheating myself. And Get Out, aside from being a great quote-unquote horror film for people that are usually terrified of horror, is one of the funniest, most scathing social critiques I have ever seen, period. And to do that effectively, to have humor and drama and violence and social critique all exist seamlessly side by side is so impressive especially for a featured directorial debut it's absolutely from a comedian from a comedian yeah Yeah. and also my introduction to daniel kaluuya who i cannot get enough of to this day yeah um his performance in get out is so impressive and just all consuming and it is so terrifying on so many levels and Also, as a white person, one of the most fascinating films to watch and laugh at myself when I can Yeah. in that the host family is this kind of paradigmatic limousine liberal family. And the fact that Jordan Peele was talking for the first time about how, quote unquote, well-meaning liberals um, can be wildly offensive in a lot of the things they say, it should cause a lot of people to look internally, and I hope it does. But yeah. it also is uproariously funny, and yeah, just yeah, so I great. mean, the friend, the airport security friend is <laughs> Get Out is quickly becoming of like one of the most iconic horror movies of all time, and that's yeah. so impressive. By like as we said, it's a directorial debut from a comedian. Yeah, like the shot of Daniel's eyes all tearing up is yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Chilling. And actually, we will use this moment to go to Daniela Valles, who is an employee here at the Burns as well. And she is going to talk about why Get Out was on her best of the decade list. So one of my favorite movies of the decade is Jordan Peele's Get Out. Um, It is really entertaining and terrifying, but also important and compelling. And I don't even like scary movies. And we're back and throwing it to Mike for his number eight. Keeping on the theme of stress and anxiety, uh, my number eight film is Good Time, directed by the Safdie brothers, starring Robert Pattinson and I forgot which Safdie brother it is who's in it, who plays his brother, but it's one of them. I was going to say, like, yeah. I have a 50-50 chance. I, I think it's Josh, but who knows? I think it's Josh also. <laughs> um, essentially, it's just, if all, it's like a day in the life of this scumbag dude <laughs> just trying to protect his brother. Um it is a beautiful story about brothers and just the love that they could share and the connection, but buried in this gritty Bronx crime drama. 
And while I do think Uncut Gems is a better film, and I think I do like it more, I keep struggling with that balance. <laughs> um, good time will always be tied to going into it totally blind, not knowing what to expect, and the stress and anxiety and dread I felt for those two and whatever hours throughout the film like i remember ordering popcorn and not being able to eat the popcorn because i was just like too like <laughs> Can't wired. Even focus. yeah i couldn't yeah. even focus um beautiful score also by a uh, one point tricks never yes uh with an incredible credit song by one of tricks and iggy pop it's the most haunting beautiful thing i ever heard in my life and it made me cry at the end of it um yeah, if you haven't seen Good Time, I highly recommend it. And obviously, highly recommend Uncut Gems because Uncut Gems is somehow even more stressful. I love Uncut Gems. Okay. I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah. Adam Sandler was robbed, but I digress. We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're really, um, I as I go through this list, also still a little bit morbid. Um, my number seven is The Act of Killing. It is... Um, one of two docs that I have on my best of the decade list. And it is a documentary where Joshua Oppenheimer and Christine Sin in over the span of a few years, the film came out in 2013, but over the span of a few years, and I think produced by Werner Herzog, I want to say, which makes so much sense if that's the case. The Act of Killing is a film where the people who carried out state-sanctioned executions in Indonesia during the dictatorial regime essentially reenact the war crimes that they committed, which is just as haunting and terrifying as it sounds. And even though it's nonfiction, I would say it's the scariest movie on my top 10 list, even though I have horror films on there. <laughs> Just because it is a really clear document of the evil that man is capable of and sort of the perfect statement on the banality of evil that you have these people like smoking cigarettes and casually talking about where they would bury bodies. And for that reason, it is, I think, one of the most powerful cinematic documents I've ever seen of a really horrific period of history. I've never seen it definitely worth a watch and now i absolutely want yeah. to i'll probably get to go tonight and watch it <laughs> <laughs> jesus yeah. yeah yeah sorry to, no, that's fine to bring it further down but... uh, i'm gonna bring it up <laughs> my number eight film is scott pilgrim versus the world yeah i adore this film so much um for some context background i am a huge dork i am a big video game player this is the only film that portrays video games properly and adapts like granted this is adapted from a comic but it adapts video game themes in a very appropriate manner with like some of the the weird like breaking the far fourth wall like collecting the one-ups and like mm -hmm. all the crash booms and the whole boss fight kind of structure it is so brilliant all the performances are wonderful the music of course is oh yeah iconic so rad brie larson's song is the most hype thing in cinematic I history. I know. Friendly reminder: <laughs> Brie Larson started as a musician, as a pop singer. Yeah, as a like girl band. Yeah, early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, freaking insane. And uh, yeah, this is a film I could watch over and over again, just because, as a musician who's in like a punk rock band, and just as an avid video game player, I get such a 
warm, fuzzy feeling and like this energetic, like, hell yeah, let's get this girl. Let's do this. Yeah. It's fan service, but in the best way. Yeah. It's the best fan service possible. Yeah. That's all I watch movies for is the fan (laughs) service. (laughs) And also I realize I've done my 10 through seven, so you should catch up and do your seven too. Yeah. Very similar. Uh, my number seven, right? That, that we're on? Seven? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I'm so bad with like counting down like alternatively. Oh, no, that's cool. Like, that's why we work in film and not in math or science related fields. Yeah. Take that, <laughs> Mr. Carriaging, fifth grade. Um, <laughs> my number seven is Sing Street. Uh, Sing Street is the story. I'm just, I'm just going to spoil the the first like 10 minutes of the film because the setup this of the is film, the premise of the film. Yeah, You're not supposed to. It is the premise of the film. A uh, high school kid walks out of class one day, sees a girl across the street, talks to her, and she tells him she's a model. And he says, hey, I'm in a band. We're shooting a music video. Uh, I would love to have you in the video. You're beautiful, blah, blah, blah. She gives him his number. He says, cool. I'll see you Saturday. We're going to shoot this thing. Goes back across the street to his friend and says, hey, we need to start a band. <laughs> and it is brilliant and, and so precious so precious the music again i know i keep going on and on about music but the music is phenomenal i love their use of I mean, it's just like me in high school like trying to figure out what the hell my kind of music style yeah. would be of just replicating bands i would see on fuse and mtv i love that he is introduced to depeche mode and then all of a mm-hmm. sudden the next like musical number you get is depeche mode introduced to the cure the next thing he's all got that yeah, into the I cure i love his it's new incredible outfits. yeah um, and all culminating into this beautiful, like somewhat tragic, but you would assume happy ending of guy getting the girl. And it's just super sweet, super humbling. And yeah, again, another very hype musical moment of him singing in the crowd. Like, yeah, again, I don't want to spoil it. If you haven't seen Sing Street, please see it. And it's coming to Broadway. It's coming to for Broadway. For real, for real. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. There's a stage musical oh coming. Oh, God. That's incredible. So, all the more reason to catch up on it yes, if please. you missed it the first time around. Brown Shoes is the best song of the decade. So cute. <laughs> so precious. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to take it in another direction now and hear from Connor Hughes on Cloud Atlas and why he chose it for his best of the decade list. Uh, so, the movie that I want to talk about is Cloud Atlas. It was one of my favorite films of the decade. Um, it was directed by Tom Tykwer, uh and the Wachowski sisters. Um, it came out in 2012, and it was just a really fantastic film. Um, it had romance in it. It was comedic. Um, it's a film adaptation, which I really love. Um, it was visually stunning, and uh, the cast was just phenomenal. So if you haven't seen Cloud Atlas, definitely go check it out. All right. Back coming in with number six. Number six. Yeah. Sure. We'll, yeah. we'll figure this out by one. <laughs> Yeah. So my number six is Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins, came out in 2016. And sadly, half the reason it gets brought up these days is because of the Oscar snafu, where Best Picture was awarded to the very undeserving hot take La La Land. (laughs) And then the issue was rectified and the award was instead given to the much more deserving Moonlight. And Moonlight for me is, aside from one of the most just cinematically beautiful experiences um, that I've had in a theater in recent years, the way the film is structured in that you get these three distinct chapters of a man's life 
as he figures out who he is and deals with America's issues with race and with sexuality. And we see him navigate the world in Florida as a black queer man at three very different stages of his life. Incredible supporting performances from both Janelle Monet and Mahershala Ali, who won the Oscar for yep. his role in Moonlight. You also have the, speaking of scores, the absolutely breathtakingly beautiful score from Nicholas Patel. I should also add that even though it was not officially sanctioned by the film or A24, NPR did a chopped and screwed remix of the entire album, yep. the entire soundtrack that is so amazing and so perfect for the vibe of the film that I listen to that just as much as I listen to the soundtrack. It's so good. I just love anything chopped and screwed, but yeah. especially Nicholas Patel. It seems <laughs> so jarring and like it shouldn't work, but it does. Um, but Moonlight to me is something that when I walked out of the theater, I knew that I liked it and I knew that I had enjoyed it, but it kept coming back to haunt me in a way that few films do. And that's why I know that it was a powerful film. And that's why I put it on my list. Yeah. I believe it's the first film I ever saw do that kind of three act structure so well. Yeah. Like usually that's just kind of like a gimmick that kind of falls flat for me. And who they like the casting is incredible. Who they casted to play each version of the protagonist. Oh God, yeah. It's seamless. Like you just totally buy it. Yeah. Yeah. It's seriously beautiful. And the score. Yeah. Again, is unbelievable. Mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, my number six, getting back to the norm of uh, dire, <laughs> screwed up. Uh, I swear I'm okay. Um, Ex Machina. Oh, yes. Ex Machina is one of the films that made me fall absolutely head over heels for A24. Ex Machina is a near perfect movie about how terrifying AI could potentially be. Oh, yeah. Um, I think Domhnall Gleeson is remarkable in this role. It's the first time, granted, not the first time because Harry Potter was the first time. Uh, <laughs> first time I've seen him like in a role that was so, this is going to sound stupid, but human. Mm. And him playing off of Alicia Vikander, that relationship is so interesting and you just want more of it and you can't wait for those two characters to come back together. But then... Oscar Isaac comes to crash the party and Oscar Isaac is absolutely brilliant as this crazy drunken Steve Jobs like <laughs> creature. Yeah. Um, I hate always coming back to this moment, but I really wish that this film ended five minutes before it actually ended. Mm. I don't know if you know what I'm referring to. I do. The elevator. Mm -hmm. I wish this film ended with the elevator and not kind of the epilogue thing that we got. Interesting. If we did, it would have been way higher on my list, but mm -hmm. I feel like that took me out of it a little bit to kind of critique probably the only film on this list um but yeah no i think this film is absolutely stunning brilliant shot beautifully yeah yeah i didn't have it in my top 10 but i have it on my honorable mention list the, the which, uh, endless honorable mention yeah list. exactly <laughs> the, the honorable mention list is things that genuinely pained me to cut from the top 10 I know. and ex machina is, is definitely on there yeah. that is such a stunning film and the best Oscar Isaac dance scene. I was just going to say, seen. we'd be remiss to not mention <laughs> the dance yeah. scene. Absolutely. Oh, so good. Yeah. All right. Number five. Are we on number five? Sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're all keeping track at home. 
So my number five is Only Lovers Left Alive. It is a Jim Jarmusch film Mm -hmm. that came out in 2014. Um, For context, I am a huge Jim Jarmusch fan, so I was definitely biased. (laughs) But this is one where as soon as I heard about it, I was like, oh, great. Jim Jarmusch is making a vampire movie. Why is he hopping on this vampire bandwagon? He seems better than that. And then I saw it and I was like, just kidding. He completely redefined the genre. And I, the film is absolutely stunning in terms of its cinematography, but it also has really spectacular performances. In particular, I would note from Tilda Swinton, who is just so ethereal in every way, shape and form. And I'm obsessed with them. Um, But also a really amazing performance from Anton Yelchin, who I miss every day and I'm very sad that he is no longer with us um, and gives Only Lovers Left Alive this really melancholy tinge that it almost didn't have before his death. And it is so spooky and special and unique and for something that came out, again, in the midst of a bunch of other vampire movies, stands alone for me and is really um very different for Jarmish in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but really has stuck with me. Also a really good soundtrack that I have on vinyl. <laughs> I know that we keep adding this to every single one. Strap but, in this is gonna yeah. be the entire podcast. <laughs> um but I do have it on vinyl, which I'm really oh, proud yeah. of. And yeah, so that's my number five for sure. Side note, have you seen Dead Don't Die? Yes. Did you like it? I did. I didn't okay. love it. But I liked it. Okay. It's something I missed last year, two years ago. Was it last year? June of last year. Yeah. Wow. June 2019. 2019 was like 10 years old. I know. Yeah. I really want to see it. I keep yeah. hearing mixed things. Dead Don't Die is much funnier. So granted, okay. like it's his take on a vampire movie versus a zombie movie. Right. Dead Don't Die, I would say, is much more of a comedy. Okay. Only Lovers Left Alive definitely has funny moments. But. But I would say is much more of a drama when oh. it comes down to it. Yeah. I got to catch that. Yeah. Uh, my number five, four? Number five. five. No, I'm on my number four now. <laughs> all right, cool. So you go, you're number four. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, my number four, also very haunting, but in a very different way, is Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, starring Ryan Gosling as the driver. It is a film that is very sparse in terms of dialogue, but has a really cool soundtrack. (laughs) Whoa, soundtrack? Tell me more. (laughs) Hot takes. Um, But also has some really spectacular cinematography. And I don't think that Refn has been able to make a film since that has as compelling of a story. I think that he has an amazing eye and a really clear trademark aesthetic. And Drive is one where it, worked really well as a story and is one that I found myself so affected by for something that has such minimal dialogue and such minimal plot. It really stayed with me. And there have been a lot of comparisons to things like Taxi Driver because of the kind of explosive violence that happens near the end. And aesthetically, I don't think it has any resemblance to Taxi Driver. Um, But It is something that in its use of color and neon light and just different shot types is so effective and making so much out of so little. 
And that's why it's my number four. Nice. Yeah. How about you? My number four. Hey, welcome to the Jacob Burns music cast uh, <laughs> is whiplash. Mm. Whiplash is something that stuck with me for a very long time because I have been in the situation of the student with an overly aggressive <laughs> teacher and it's crazy how real it is. Still my favorite Damien Chazelle film by Same. far. Yeah. Especially as you guys heard me, um, deride La La Land a little earlier. City of stars. <laughs> Not backing down on that. <laughs> All right. And we are going to take another brief break and throw it to Christine Coleman here at the Burns and her commentary on the edge of 17 and why she chose it for her best of the decade list. The movie that I chose is The Edge of Seventeen. I absolutely love this film. The first time that I watched it was actually here at the Burns in one of our classes. And just watching the dynamic between Haley Steinfeld and Woody Harrelson was extremely engaging and fun. And her acting in this movie is just incredible. I'm a huge John Hughes fan. And even though he so eloquently depicts the lives of teenagers, the way that Kelly Freeman Craig uh, is able to do this with her writing in this film is just incredible. And that's one of the first times I've ever watched a movie that I felt close to not only the main character, but so many different characters in um, a film. And we're back with number three. My number three is the second of two documentaries that I had on my top ten. Um... And it's one that I was kind of late to the game and watching. We did show it here at the Burns and I made the huge mistake of not seeing it on the big screen. Mm. But finally ended up watching it on, I think, Hulu. It is still streaming on. Um, but Minding the Gap, directed by Bing Liu, yeah. is a film, is a documentary film um, shot by someone who is roughly my age, which is very depressing to think of how accomplished he is. But he basically documented his life skateboarding with his friends in a town that was losing industry and jobs and kind of falling apart as the 90s and 2000s happened, um, as manufacturing really left the area in Ohio, I think they are. We I think up, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, it's... What started out as him just wanting to make skate videos with his friends turns into this multi-year document of how the cycle of poverty is continued, how a cycle of domestic violence is continued, how parental abuse continues in cycles. And it ends up being one of the most self-aware documentaries I've ever seen in that all the characters in it seem to be so conscious of the trap that they're stuck in and yet totally unable to escape. And the fact that he shot it over that amount of time and it's was insane. able, yeah, it's, it's just so astounding of an achievement in terms of filmmaking and so like simple in its premise and ends up being so powerful as you just watch what happens to these real friends of his over time. Um, it's one that, yeah, just resonates in a way you really don't expect going in. You're like, oh, it's a bunch of kids skating and shooting videos. Like I used to do that as a kid. And then halfway through, you're like, this is something else entirely. Yeah. 
Yeah. The fact that he had the courage to put his loved ones in that kind of light. Yeah. And just be brutally real and honest with himself, his family, and his friends is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like you going to that, I'm like, oh, cool. Skate videos. Right. Hell yeah. Let's yeah. do it. Uh, and just like quick side note, shout out to like just the skate video portion. Yeah. Like, it's insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you, it goes from fun skate videos to this brutal story of these, I, I almost say characters, but like these these people that you just instantly love. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That also just missed my list mm. on mm-hmm. my endless honorable yeah. mention. That's, honorable yeah. mention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my number three, going back to the theme of dread, <laughs> is The Witch. Oh, yeah. Uh, probably, this is going to be a bold statement, but I think it's my favorite horror movie of all time now. All time? I think so. Granted, I'm probably missing so many things. Mm-hmm. But but it's a good one to pick. It is a good one. I'll I'll never forget my screening of it again going to Alamo Draft House. It was a totally empty screening. It was like me, my partner at the time, and maybe like the row in front of us, like a couple of other people in a very empty, you'll know their star friends, and a very empty T1, mm-hmm. which, which is their biggest theater. Um, it ended and me and her were just silent because I just couldn't process what I just watched just because I was floored, like yeah. in the best way possible. And then that moment is instantly ruined by the kids in front of me <laughs> laughing, saying, Psh, well, that was the worst thing I ever saw in my life. I was like, wow, you don't get horror and you don't get this yeah. concept of complete dread for two and a half hour, two hours straight. Right. And the payoff that oh, so good. is so brilliant because it's not this cliche like, oh, the protagonist won at the end. Oh, the protagonist died at the end. Yeah, she become. Oh, no, I'm not gonna say it. Um, just in case, if you haven't watched The Witch, watch it. Yeah. But I, I, whenever people try to, uh, they ask me for horror recommendations. I do suggest The Witch a lot because it's not horror in the sense that you'll get a lot of pop scares, like very cheap jump scares, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate. I really don't. I dislike horror films that try to do that too much. Like kind of rely on that whole thing. I'm talking to you, James Wan. Um, but this one totally just like brings you into this world of this true scare of witches in Massachusetts and brings it on, brings it in on such a grounded real level. Yeah. The idea of exploring societal norms as a source of fear and the fact that that fear can feed on itself and create violence or dread just by virtue of people existing outside the norm or not fitting puritanic literal puritanical (laughs) societal conventions um but also the attention to detail like i know his cinematographer same one he used on the lighthouse only works by natural light which is insane and i'm sure as a crew they hate him but the end result is so beautiful and i remember reading an article about how eggers is commitment to detail involved hiring someone who worked at the Plymouth Museum to do the costumes, hiring North America's second most thatch expert to do the roofs, which begs (laughs) the question, who is the number one North American thatch expert? It's me. (laughs) Spoiler. It's like, but yeah, great choice. Yeah. And Ani Taylor-Joy is an absolute 
treasure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was like the, her big breakout thing. And I, yeah, everything she's been in since she's been so good. remarkable, good or bad, like yeah. talking about glass, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're going to take another break and throw it to Jesse Stanley, another staffer here at the Burns and hear him talk about his choice for best of the decade. My pick for film of the decade would be Real Lives, starring Tom Hughes. It came out in 2015, a sci-fi philosophical piece that really focuses on what our morality is and our memories and how we would exist in the future where we can create life again. We can basically die and then come back to life and retain our memories in a new world, a new space. And what would that do to a person? I really connected it with it when it came out because it really captures what humanity is in essence in our own thoughts and consciousness so yeah definitely real life definitely try to see it and now we're back with number two mine is kind of like the witch in that <laughs> i guess not really is it the wizard of oz <laughs> no um in that it's about a lot more than you're just seeing on screen, I guess. Um, but my pick for number two is A Ghost Story, directed by David Lowry. Nice. Which is a film that I know a lot of people do not like. And I completely understand why people think it is a pretentious pile of garbage. Um, I'm going to strongly disagree, but I, I get it. I get it. Um, but coming into it, I was a huge David Lowry fan. I thought that Ain't Them Body Saints was a really, really gorgeous film. And so coming into it, I also was aware of Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck's um, awesome, awesome chemistry. And so you come into a ghost story knowing that about them and knowing they're going to work so well together. And then it ends up being, I thought, one of the most poetic and beautiful and at the same time, accurate depictions of grief and loss and mourning that I've ever seen that I spent pretty much the whole movie crying in a, in a good way. Like it was so beautiful, but you also it's able to call up the feeling of loss in a way that is totally universal. And it uses this very sort of sort of silly um imagery of a person in a sheet with two holes cut out for eyes which for the record there was a lot of thought put into that costume they did oh, not yeah. just throw a sheet over someone <laughs> but um that's what it's been distilled to for a lot of people but taking that imagery and doing something entirely new and intellectual with it and i thought in the end creating yeah one of the most mournful pieces of cinema i've ever seen and the kind of thing that made me feel like this is what it's like to lose someone that you love. And you, I was so affected by it because it's like you are experiencing the grief of losing someone all over again. And it has stayed with me in a way a lot of other movies have not. I am not in the uh, hate camp, <laughs> but I'm also not in the love camp. Yeah. That, and I, it's but cool. I, I, I do it. love the imagery and the use of the passage of time in it. And I, I always love, more DIY looking stuff in films. Yeah. The ghost costume is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. And, and I, again, like the witch, something that's like, it's like it sounds stupid, but something that is sort of grounded because everybody right. has put a sheet over their head at right. some point. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. You're number two now. My number two 
is a little film I feel like not a lot of people have heard of. Uh, Thunder Road. <laughs> uh, Paige is laughing because she knows how much I freaking love this movie. <laughs> uh, written, directed, and starring Jim Cummings. Uh, it is the story about, similar to Ghost Story, the story about grief and mm-hmm. handling a death, especially the death of a parent. And um, I saw this film shortly after losing my father and just like Paige crying throughout the entire <laughs> yeah. two hours of a ghost story, I was a freaking wreck the entire time. I felt sad. I felt joy. I felt I was laughing. I was sobbing. It just tells this really honest story about a, a cop who does lose his parent and just him balancing normal life of his career plus trying to raise a child on his own and just dealing with his internal struggles of dealing with grief and loss and how the hell do you handle that and how does a person go through that kind of thing? How does a person get over that kind of thing? Um, And granted, it's very on the nose at some point because he does just pretty much explain why the film is called Thunder Road. But the, the relation between the title of this film and the song Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen, which is why this film is titled this way. And there is like a plot thing in the film, I think is totally gorgeous and beautiful. And it kind of made me feel okay for a little bit about losing a loved one also. Um, but yeah. Because it's so much about the complicated feelings that come with yeah. loss, that there are moments that are totally ridiculous and f- hilarious, even yeah. though you're also in the middle of this deep pain. Yeah. And it's, one of the most uncomfortable experiences I've felt watching a movie, like that whole intro scene with the funeral. Yeah. It's so awkward and just right. like cringy, but that's how it is sometimes. Yeah. Like I remember, again, not to get super dark or anything, but I remember at my father's funeral, there were some weird, stupid, cringeworthy moments that I right. wish I could take back. Right. Um, but yeah, it's like so real and so honest. I never saw anything so true to its subject matter. Yeah. And yeah, it's awesome. So beautiful. Um, and so before we come up to number one, we're going to go to one more GBFC staffer for their commentary. And that's going to be Adrian Frank with her pick for Best of the Decade. When I was in college, there was a film festival that came into my city and I had never been into a film festival before and I really wanted to go see a movie and I could really only afford to go see one movie because I was a broke college student and I could only fit one movie into my schedule between classes and work and everything. And so it ended up being this movie, Blanca Nieves, AKA Snow White. And I went to see this and was absolutely blown away. It is just a beautiful piece of art. It's a retelling of the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, um, but it's set in 1920s Spain in the world of bullfighting, and it very quietly subverts the fairy tale genre in what I think is a really beautiful way. And what's also really special about this film is it's set in the 1920s and it's shot like a film in the 1920s. So it's black and white, and it's a silent film that uses title cards, which also came really in handy when I had a double ear infection and I really wanted to watch a movie, but I couldn't hear anything. And so I watched this movie because it's silent. And we're back with our number ones. The long-awaited, drum roll, please. <laughs> oh, you, you're good at that. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so um, part of why I was glad to have a ghost story coincidentally at number two, this was not deliberate, but... Um, a ghost story two <laughs> is number one. <laughs> there is um, There are three films that are affectionately 
referred to as the Texas Time Trilogy, um, which are all films set in Texas that play with time in very interesting ways and came out in um, the recent past. Um, number three is Ghost Story by David Lowry. Number two is Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. And number one, which is my number one, is Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Nice. Um, a film that, unlike Moonlight, did not get the Best Picture Award it deserved. There is a tweet that I love that I have saved that says, there are two types of people in this world, Birdman people and Boyhood people. <laughs> Everyone is entitled to their opinion, but only one is right. I am obviously Team Boyhood. Um, I should preface this by saying, much with Lowry, I am a huge Richard Linklater fan. He is probably one of my favorite living directors. Um, Daisy Confused is probably my favorite comedy, if I had to pick. Mm. Um, so I came into this with a deep love for Richard Linklater. I also think he happens to be one of the few directors capable of getting incredible performances out of Ethan Hawke, um, <laughs> who I think can be very hit or miss. I'm um, sorry, did you not enjoy Daybreakers? <laughs> Moving on. Fine. <laughs> um, but Boyhood, for me, um, a lot of people dismissed it as sort of gimmicky. Um, but the reason why I think it is such a perfect film and why I picked it as my number one of the last decade is because if you look at Richard Linklater's body of work, you have this entire oeuvre that deals with time. And so many of his films are constrained, like within temporal constraints, that you have Dazed and Confused, which takes place across one day, that you have the Before Trilogy that takes place in these very concise moments of time. Um, and then you have Boyhood, which is sort of that idea taken to the most extreme degree. And so, for one, the idea of committing to a film project for 12 years is totally insane. And the fact that he got everybody to sign on for it is so impressive. But the end result is is a narrative that almost reads like documentary mm. because I every time it jumps forward, you're so, so struck by the passage of time. And you ha I just remember this one scene where it cuts to him in high school and you see him against the lockers and I gasped and I was like, oh, he's growing up so fast. And that's, that's <laughs> what life is like. And so much of boyhood is so interesting because they had to change it over time. Like as politics changed when Obama was elected, that yeah. had to be incorporated. So you have aspects of reality that made its way into the narrative, but you also have people aging in real time and to be able to watch the passage of time like that in a narrative and not doing it with makeup or de-aging yeah. is to me not gimmicky, but rather sort of this holistic commitment to like what it means to play with time on film. And it's endearing and beautiful and so relatable, regardless of the fact that I identify as female, I can relate to the character growing up. There's so much that's so universal about that experience. And it is so spectacular, and I love it so much. I haven't seen it. It's okay. I'm not going to hold it against you, but um, this is our last episode. I did see Berman. <laughs> For shame. Uh, it's Michael Keaton back in a suit. Are you kidding I'm me? I'm not saying Birdman is a bad movie. Just <laughs> to clarify, I enjoy Birdman. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about how Maurice Perros by Inuritu <laughs> is my favorite movie. True. Big fan. But it's not yeah. as good as Boyhood. Yeah, I don't know why. I just like totally missed it. 
Yeah. Like, it's something that's been on my like need to watch list for ever since Birdman came out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I totally missed it. Um, yeah, I mean, no wonder why it's like on your decade list. It's, oh, yeah. it's incredible. Like it was such an incredible feat. Yeah, hearing about. It. I was like, I first heard about it. And it was like, how was that possible? Right. And that's something it's I believe has never been done before. And yeah. Um. But speaking of Ethan Hawke and Daybreakers, um, my number one pick <laughs> is not Daybreakers, <laughs> um, is the introduction to probably one of my favorite directors um, of all time now. Uh, it is What We Do in the Shadows. Yes. The perfect marriage and blend between two distinctly different genres, which is comedy and horror, mm -hmm. similar to something what, as we talked about earlier with Get Out, does so brilliantly. I never wanted to believe a mockumentary was so real in my life <laughs> <I know. laughs> because you just instantly fall in love with every single character in this film as like while Taika is introducing all of his roommates um, it plays on as we we're talking about with Jim Jarmusch it plays on the vampire genre in such a unique light yeah um, especially making it a weird incredibly dry comedy I'd be remiss to not mention Jermaine Clement, who is Ugh. stunning, like just jaw-droppingly perfect in this film. Even as a half cat. Even as a half cat, <laughs> which is my favorite image in the I my know. favorite image of the, the decade. Best one second still. <laughs> the best screen cap of the decade is Jermaine Clement <laughs> as a cat. Um, the whole werewolf storyline is brilliant. I'm still We're waiting for that not sequel. We're werewolves, not swearwolves. <laughs> still waiting for that sequel. Taika, come on, I know you're I busy, know. but Jesus. Um, I, yeah, I, that's another film I try to watch at least once a year around Halloween. Oh, it's yeah. just so brilliant and perfect. And Taika is still, he, Taika has not made a bad movie yet. No. And I still, every time he, something new is coming out from him, including Jojo this past year, including, I believe it's called first goal wins this year, which technically isn't officially announced yet. Um, even the Thor stuff again, huge dork. Love it. Um, Yeah. It's just, it's perfect. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a really perfect film. Yeah. Again, something I thought came out in the nineties, but that's just, New Ze that's just, <laughs> just New Zealand film. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. yeah. But that's actually my favorite thing about Taika too, is that, um, boy, which was his first film to come yeah. to Sundance, set the record for highest grossing New Zealand film of all time. And then that record was broken by What We Do in the Shadows, also Taika. And then that record was bitten by Hunt for the Wilder yeah, People, Wilder. also Taika. That he just keeps redefining yeah. new heights in Kiwi film. So good. <laughs> I'm really thankful. I was scared when he got tapped on for Thor Ragnarok. Grants, I was like really excited as a MCU yeah. fan. But I was really nervous that this was going to be the end of his like Kiwi films, like his really weird indie yeah very very niche films <laughs> uh but then we got jojo and yeah. jojo's fun. granted jojo is very mainstream but it but is still, still it's it still, still has the weird all over yeah. It, yeah even we're not we're only talking about this for like 15 seconds uh his mandalorian episode oh my the, god yeah. the intro of it is a taika film right it, which is brilliant it's just this conversation between these two people that's very weird and awkward and quippy and it's brilliant. Um, so I am grateful that it seems like he's doing one of his films and a Disney film and then one of his, then a Disney. Yeah. Um, he's got to yeah. eat. He's I get eat. it. Yeah. Yeah. He's got to, you know, pay for his freaking <laughs> Tesla or whatever, you know? <laughs> but yeah. Oh, yeah, so good. It's brilliant. So you want to do overall top 10? Yeah. 
All right. So um, there is a blog post up on the JBFC website um, where you can see everybody's top 10 list um, who submitted one from JBFC staff. And so in taking everybody's top 10 list, um, we assigned a numerical value to each film in that if you picked a film as your number one, it gets 10 points, number two gets nine points, and so on and so forth. And so we tallied up everybody's and came up with the ultimate top 10 of the JBFC of the decade. All right. Do you want to trade it off? Yeah, sure. All right. Number 10 is The Act of Killing with 18 points. Yeah. Yeah which I obviously had on my list, but other people did too, (laughs) Um, which is so cool. And you should all see. Um, Number nine is The Social Network, which I should say, with 19 points, which I should say that a lot of film critics have cited or directors have cited as kind of one of the most important films of the decade. Mm -hmm. And obviously neither Mike or I brought it up, but it's kind of difficult to talk about that film as being like, unimportant when it deals with Facebook, which is something that's obviously such an integral part of our lives and politics and economics today. Um, Really important film. And also amazing performance by Army Hammer as the Winklevi. Yes. (laughs) The Winklevi. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Number eight, Get Out, which we did speak about. Yeah. And actually tied, I guess, for number eight, because it also has 24 points. Is the favorite, which we did not talk about, but is obviously so spectacular. And we actually haven't talked about Yorgos at all. I know. So, Killing of a Sacred Deer was on my, it was very close to being my top 10. It was on my own. <laughs> uh, everything on this list is my own. <laughs> um, Yorgos is one of the most fascinating filmmakers of our time. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, the favorite is brilliant, but I just really quickly, just Killing of a Sacred Deer is so dark and heart-wrenching and I love the worlds that he puts his characters in mm-hmm. even like like the favorite like there is an established world something like the lobster that is just this weird way of speaking like weird right. dialect with each other it's yeah he is I don't know what the hell his childhood was like I know, to I was come up to say, with I don't know what crap. happened to him and I'm so sorry I'm so sorry but I'm so thankful <laughs> yeah, but I'm so thankful um, but yeah on the seven is the favorite the favorite is like absolutely brilliant it was uh, was this his only adapted screenplay I think so it was his yeah. first and the the joke is that we know it's adapted not original because he doesn't kill the animals in it <laughs> true <laughs> quite the opposite there's many rabbits yeah <laughs> um yeah yeah and so number six, then with 25 points, we have Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which despite coming out this fall, really rose to the top of a lot of people's lists. And as, as it should. Yeah, as it should. Yeah. And I had it as my best of 2019. Same. A lot of people had it as their best of the decade. Um, but it's something that is so haunting. And also on the subject of Get Out, a really good combination of dread and social critique. Yeah. And... and- funny at oh times. yeah and like, yeah. and hilarious at points um checks all those boxes yeah <laughs> brilliant did you see that tweet or instagram post or whatever that there is always something visually separating the rich from the poor visually in the in, film. in yeah in the film no so, like, but i believe it and i love that like there's the what this isn't a spoiler but there's the one shot in the trailers with um the the main wife and the main helper mm-hmm. towards the beginning 
and like the, the main character is looking through a window and you see like the window frame like separating them so brilliant it is it's so crazy yeah Bong Joon-ho is a genius and I'm so glad to see him get the respect he deserves also former artist in residence here at the JBFC a little humble brag a little humble brag (laughs) I'm gonna go even a layer deeper with my humble brag Uh, my first task on my first day at work at the JBFC uh, I had to build Ikea furniture because Bong was coming. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> Over at the house. You're like, oh, Bong, I built your Konkin will. Yeah, can we be best friends now? Please. Uh, it's weird that he hasn't returned my calls yet, but you know, whatever. Um, number four, sorry, number five uh, with 27 points is Boyhood. Yeah. Which I already spoke about it, like, so I won't waste your time anymore. I was but, waiting for another. Like. But I'm glad that I get to introduce number four because I did say earlier that... Linklater is one of the few people who can get good performances out of Ethan Hawke. And I am pleased to say that another one of those people is Paul Schrader, whose first Reformed comes in at number four with 29 points. I love first Reformed. This was also my, this was the first one that I, this was my like number 11. Sure was. (laughs) That um, it was my favorite film of 2018. Mm. And it is again, so powerful and so moving in how stark and simplistic it is that, uh, yeah, it's it's really a work of art that also got completely shunned mm. by awards. Um, Do you know uh, who else had this on their top of the decade list? First Reformed? Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of people. Um, hmm. I was totally, totally leading you in for a quick punchline joke thing, but you were actually researching. Oh my God. Wait. <laughs> uh, Paul Schrader had this on his top Oh yeah, that's list. true. Credit to Paul Schrader for citing his own film as one of his best of the decade, yeah. which is a level of boldness that I admire and respect greatly. Also shout out to Paige for taking that seriously. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So great. So great. Um, number three, very much deserved is my need the gap with 30 points. Yeah. That I know we keep saying like oh honorable mention that's my eleven I think that, I think that's I think that's my eleven that or killing yeah. of a sacred deer is my eleven yeah but yeah and the number two which we haven't spoken about at all um, with thirty four points is shoplifters which is also much like parasite this dramedy that is simultaneously an incredible commentary on class and economics and. Also, this Korean film that mm. is doing something with cinema that we just don't have yet in the States. And also, much like Parasite, has a twist that you will never in a million years see yeah. coming. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but yeah, Shoplifters, really worth a watch. Yeah. And then number one, Moonlight with 41 points. Yeah. Congrats, Barry. You can come in now. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, just sort of as a side note, those were the top 10 based on kind of how many points were given to each, which depends on how people ranked those films in their top 10. But the most common films, the films that made it onto five separate staff lists um, were Moonlight, Shoplifters, Minding the Gap, and Get Out. Even that top... Five most common list like what a freaking list i know there's been some good movies it's been a good decade it has we did it we did 
We'll page. Thank you for joining me on this first episode. Yeah, of thank Jacob you, Burns Mike, Filmcast. and thank you all for listening. Um, we will be back with regular episodes and occasionally having guests just beyond us. In case you did not like hearing our hilarious rapport, it's understandable. <laughs> You're wrong, but it's understandable. <laughs> Just like being a Birdman fan. It's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for joining us. That's yeah. the best of the decade. If you have a best of the decade list that you would like to send to us or you feel um, that you disagree or agree strongly with our rankings, um, you can email us. We are available at jbfilmcast at gmail.com. And next week, we're going to play a little game and do some Oscar predictions. The nominations just dropped and the internet is totally happy with them and like totally cool with it. And it's weird. It's like everything's normal. It's yeah, great. I definitely it's really don't positive. have any thoughts yeah, or no things thoughts to add. All. That's a perfect, yeah, perfect list, list as it is. Mm-hmm. Joker, 11 nominations. Great. Greta, yeah, she didn't need best director. Anyways, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening.